my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honour the King of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And that last expression is the whole subject matter of the chapter. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Pride's a problem in the Bible, identified as such repeatedly. Let me give you some texts that just establish that. In James chapter 4 and verse 6, and in 1 Peter 5 and verse 5, we're taught that God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. When you go back into the Old Testament, you discover that pride lay at the heart of the entrance of sin into God's creation. And Satan, the anointed cherub, he was expelled from heaven because his heart became proud. And he was lifted up in pride. Even when you think about his temptation that he brought in the Garden of Eden, part of that temptation was based upon appealing and stimulating, as if it were, pride. And he tempted Eve that she could become, with Adam, as God. In fact, when you go back into the New Testament, you find this that John in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16, speaks about the boastful pride of life. And those who are proud are an abomination to the Lord. And pride brings its own destruction. Proud people tend to self-combust, now not literally, but metaphorically. And one writer said this, as the chest swells, the brain and the heart shrink. And Mark Twain, he again, I read some him sometimes, temper is what gets most of us into trouble, pride is what keeps us there. And pride is a problem. The Bible identifies it as such, and this chapter is quite an illustration of what God thinks about pride and what God does to pride. Now let's just think about Nebuchadnezzar, this king. Nebuchadnezzar has been successful in building an empire and that empire was the supreme empire in the world at that time. There was no greater empire than his. And now he turns his attention, having built his empire, to build his legacy. And so he begins to construct um, the city of Babylon to be that great city and one of the greatest cities the world has ever seen. They were the Hanging Gardens, one of the wonders of the world. And it was constructed in the wilderness, actually, in the desert. It was amazing. And a very large structure which was terraced, accommodated many trees and plants and hung over, hence the expression, the hanging gardens. And he was a man who was very proud of his achievements and proud of the empire and desperate to leave his mark and build his legacy. (laughs) Now, previous to this, he'd already had God's intervention in his life on more than one occasion. God had intervened through Daniel and he had had opportunity to turn to God. You think of these two major events that the first few chapters of Daniel speak about. These events by which the king in chapter 2 and verse 47 confesses that Daniel's God is a God of gods 
and a lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, he acknowledged Daniel's God as being not the God, but a God. But nonetheless, deity. And then in chapter 3, you have the same thing. You have this um, incident with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And the outcome of that, again, is that you've got this confession by Nebuchadnezzar who not only acknowledges that Daniel's God is a great God, but now acknowledges that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego's God is a saving God. So you have the greatness of God who reveals mysteries and you have the salvation character of God. And both of these things have been brought to bear upon Nebuchadnezzar in the most graphic of fashions. He was learning and having revealed to him by God his character and the opportunity to turn to him to acknowledge his greatness, but also to acknowledge that he's the saving God. But the problem he has is just this. There's a massive barrier between God and him. And the barriers is pride. And God's going to take that barrier and smash the barrier. And in order to smash the barrier of the king of kings, as how he was described, he has to have this dramatic intervention and humbling that he experiences in this chapter. And at the end of the chapter, you get to the point, and certainly the chapter's um, autobiographical, it's being written by Nebuchadnezzar at the beginning and the end, and what happens in the middle is true of him. He's the whole subject matter, really, of the chapter. And it seems that this has its effect, and that he is humble. So you have what God will do to humble a proud person, the extent to which God will go. So let's just, a few points on this. First of all, the exposure of pride in Nebuchadnezzar. Now there's quite a difference in Nebuchadnezzar at the beginning of this chapter as he's speaking about his experience and he's actually telling his own story. We might say he's given his testimony. So King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations and languages that dwell on all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. And he's saying basically, send this out, tell people what happened to me and what God did to me. That's what the chapter's all about. In chapter 2, at the beginning, you find Nebuchadnezzar's anxious, he's erratic, he's actually furious. At the beginning of chapter 3, he's similar, he sets up this big golden image and you remember he wants everyone to bow down and worship the image which is an image of him and now we've got a stunning reversal and he's giving his testimony at the beginning of chapter four so how did this happen now we don't actually know when during his reign this happens but it says in verse four he was at ease in his house prospering in his palace he is enjoying the fruits of his labor so these spectacular architectural accomplishments, he, he's enjoying them. He's sitting there in one of his three summer palaces that he had and he is enjoying, he is looking around and he's, he's pleased with himself. The luxury, the wealth, the power, all of it. And all of that is conducive to one thing, pride. So the more someone does and the more someone gets, the greater stimulus in that person's life to pride. To look upon accomplishments, to look upon wealth, status, position, possessions, to see themselves elevated in some way over other people is at the very root cause of pride in the Bible. And when he's sitting there in that condition, he has this dream. 
Now, we're not going to go into it in detail because we can summarise what the dream is. So just like the first dream he had, it absolutely terrifies him, and no one can tell him what it means, but he sees a big tree that reaches to heaven. Now, here's the summary of the dream. And there's echoes, by the way, of the Tower, the, the tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11 here. But you've got this big tree, and the tree provides food and shelter for the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. So this tree is providing resources for everyone that comes and takes shelter under it. And in an instant, a watcher, probably an angelic emissary from God, comes down from heaven, demands that the tree's cut down, and a stump remains. And that the mind of the man that the tree represents be changed from a man's mind to a beast's mind. Then he's going to have to remain in this condition for seven periods of time. We don't know where they are. Until he gets to the point that he knows that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and sets it over the lowliest of men. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is the tree. Nebuchadnezzar is going to get cut down. He's going to go from a position of being the fountainhead of resources for all in the empire that bears his name and he's going to be the, the head of that empire and everything else is taking shelter under him. It all goes to him. It's all focused on him. He's supreme in his authority. He is going to be cut down because he's got something to learn. Now, what's he got to learn? He needs to know that God is sovereign. There's someone bigger than him, greater than him, Three times over in the chapter, that is impressed time and time again. It's the big lesson. Nebuchadnezzar is proud. He's a great example of it. And even after his two experiences thus far in the book, he's still proud. And unless something happens, that self-absorbed pride will be a barrier between him and God. Pride is what C.S. Lewis, by the way, in his book, Mere Christianity, calls the great sin. So let's talk about pride. If that's the context of the chapter, here's the point. How does pride work in our lives? So if we see the example of Nebuchadnezzar, we can see that replicated in a much lesser way in our experience. But it's the same thing. So whenever you measure yourself against somebody else and that produces a feeling or an assessment within you of superiority, this is pride. Pride elevates over others. Now that can be in lots of ways. It can be, for some of you, maybe not for so many of us, but for some of you it might be your um, educational accomplishments. And it has produced within you, deep down, a feeling of superiority, a conviction of superiority. You believe yourself to be superior to other people. But it might not be that. It can be wealth. Possessions, relationships, status. It can be all sorts of things. 
whereby you come to a settled conviction in your heart. You might not express it, but it's there that you are above other people. You're superior to other people. Now, having said that, pride can also be the inverse of that. And so sometimes people can be proud that they have got less academic accomplishments. It was the person who went in uh, to the exam, sits down, signs their names and mocks out and turns around and waves at everyone getting out of the exam hall. That type of pet. That's pride as well. It's just arrogance and pride. It's a feeling of superiority. How does it... C.S. Lewis, I'm back to him again. He says this, As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people, and in order to see God, you need to look up. You see the image? If you're staring down from an elevated position that you've placed yourself on in your heart, you're not looking up and seeing the superiority of God seeing that he is all superior, that he is supreme. This is Nebuchadnezzar. You see, he could look down on the whole population from his lofty throne. But as he looked down in the whole population, you get the idea of the tree with with everything underneath it. As he's looking down and admiring his power, his authority, his accomplishments, he's not looking up. And so he is not taking into account the superiority, the authority of God and therefore he's proud he goes on to say this Lewis, Nebuchadnezzar's problem is he is so intoxicated with himself and his kingdom he hasn't grasped at a heart level it's the most high who rules in the kingdom of men and so he's blind to his own pride Now, this dream was a warning of a brutal experience that would take place in this man's life. And uh, we need to be careful as Christians about this. Because the two verses I quoted right at the beginning in James and 1 Peter tell us this. If you are proud, God will oppose you. And that's written to Christians. You're standing and against you as a proud person, as a proud Christian, against you is God. He's against you. Normally God is for you as a Christian, but pride is something that God hates. He's not passive or neutral in relation to it. He actively resists it and he hates it. A proud look. And so you have the pride exposed. But then you've got a warning, and that goes from verse 19 down to verse 27. So he has this dream, Daniel steps in and he brings an interpretation of the dream. And Nebuchadnezzar is identified as this mighty tree, and the dream speaks of seven periods of time when Nebuchadnezzar is cut down and transformed. And at this moment in time, as Daniel communicates this interpretation, this is a warning. This is a warning for Nebuchadnezzar to lose his pride. This is a warning for Nebuchadnezzar to humble himself before he's humbled. This is a warning to change. And Nebuchadnezzar's response is interesting because he actually patronises Daniel and he tries to comfort Daniel. 
And he's saying to Daniel, Belteshazzar, using that name, let not the dream of the interpretation alarm you. Don't worry about it. It's fine. Don't worry about this. You know, this isn't something that should trouble you, Daniel. Don't get, don't get upset about this. And Daniel is upset because he knows that he's actually giving to Nebuchadnezzar a warning. This will happen, Nebuchadnezzar, unless you respond. And Nebuchadnezzar is just going flying over his head. It's not hitting home. And he is patronising Daniel. And Daniel's response is interesting because Daniel's response is marked by two things. First of all, compassion for the king. And you get that in verse 19. He's saying to the king as he gives his interpretation, Oh king, this is such a bad thing that I wish that this dream was for the people who are your enemies. Not for you. That's actually quite remarkable. Remember who this king is and remember where Daniel is. Someone who's been carried away into exile from his home, from Jerusalem, by this king or those who represented him. Someone who, by the way, in Babylon has heard reports that Jerusalem has been set ablaze and destroyed by this king. And yet Daniel still has compassion for this king. He doesn't delight himself in the potential demise of the king, unlike Jonah, in relation to the people of Nineveh. It's another mark of Daniel's integrity, his compassion. And he delivers the warning. He says in verse 27, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. He's saying, listen, I'm warning you, the only way to avoid this coming to you is to change. Now, Daniel isn't saying what the king wants to hear, but he's nonetheless being true to what he has seen in the interpretation. And he wants Nebuchadnezzar to see that his sin is an offence and his pride is an offence against the living God. Again, a little application to us. Just a brief application. The truth of the matter is, that when we become aware or have it pointed out to us, and it may be the problem of pride, but it can be any other spiritual issue, we have an option as to how we respond to that. We can respond like Nebuchadnezzar and treat it as a nothing. Just, just let it go. Um, pretend it's not serious. It'll be fine. I'm not going to actually engage with that. Or we can be a bit. We can be like Daniel and take it very seriously, and realise that God is a God. And I was thinking about this up in Aberdeen. Some of you are there in the whole idea of discipline and chastening. The reality is that because we belong to God, it is inevitable that God will intervene in our lives if we start to go off the rails. It's a mark of sonship. It's a mark of divine affection as a father to his children. It's inevitable that God is going to care and God's going to act and intervene. And so... We could take the warning, whether it comes through our own reading of scripture or it's pointed out by other people, and take it seriously. Let me encourage you this evening. If you've got someone who is a true friend to you, or someone who has a spiritual interest in you, maybe an older person, but not necessarily, and they summon up the courage to speak to you about something, which is never an easy thing to do, Don't treat it as something that's nothing. Give it thought and know this, 
If it's come to that person's attention, it certainly has come to God's attention. And if you don't decide to change or to consider or to um, take on board or at least think seriously about something that's been brought to your attention, then you can be 100% certain that God will act. And he will intervene. And for Nebuchadnezzar, that was a painful thing. A painful process. Listen, from experience, I can tell you, and I think others who have lived a bit longer than some of you can tell you this, that when you live with God and for God, there are times in your life that you are uh, proud and determined and impervious to help. And you're determined to go a certain way or do a certain thing. And often, when that is the case, it results in a hard, rocky path. The way of the transgressor is hard, the Bible says. It's hard. That was Nebuchadnezzar's response. So what happened is this, God humiliated him. He humbled him. And that's what being humbled is. He humiliated him. He brought him down. If you will not come down, you will be brought down, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, we don't know what happened. It took a whole year. We don't know what happened in the intervening 12 months. But it's likely, because of the actions of God, that he persisted in his pride. God's patient with him. He's given him 12 months. This isn't an instantaneous action. This is a 12-month cooling-off period, if you like, whereby he can take on board what's been said and make adjustments and change, but he obviously doesn't, because when you come to the end of the 12 months and he's wandering about, starting to speak to himself, in verse 29 it says this, he's walking in the roof of his royal palace, he, he's looking around and he says, this is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty he's uh, he's he's standing and as far as the eye can see he's saying this is mine i did it and i did it for me look at what this says about me pride and the personal pronouns punctuate it and immediately god acts and intervenes you get headed in the New Testament like this as well. One writer said this, In an instant, Nebuchadnezzar is driven from the highest of highs, a king with all the luxuries one could imagine, to the lowest of lows, like an animal, in a subhuman state, until he knows and comes to learn the lesson that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. Now, I don't think this is metaphorical. I think this is actual. I think God intervened in this man's life and he had a complete breakdown in every way. It was catastrophic and immediate. And he went from uh, speaking, conversing, sitting in a throne, he went to looking like and behaving like an animal. <coughs> That's how it's described. A total loss of all his faculties and capabilities as a man. And now he is resembling, as it's described, as a beast. God humbled him immediately. 
Can God do that? Yes, he can. Does God do that? Well, he did here. I don't know if God still does this kind of thing. I have no idea. But to be humbled by God is obviously a very, very painful experience. When pride is exposed, and we won't do anything about it, and God decides to intervene. His fall was sudden, dramatic, and painful. You say, nothing like that ever happened to me. And you take pride in your intellect until that intellect is touched by God. And you lose it. Is that possible? That's possible. You take pride in your possessions until God brings circumstances overnight into your life and you lose them. Is that possible? That's possible. You take pride in whatever it is. God can blow on it. God can touch it. And as a child of God, God can intervene in discipline in our life in all sorts of ways. And the wonder is just this, that Nebuchadnezzar's experiences here are not the end of the story. Because God didn't do this to destroy him, but to bless him. And it wouldn't have felt like it in the middle of that experience. But to humble him was actually to bless him. And so the tree's chopped down, but there's a stump of its roots that was left in the earth that signals that there's hope within his humility. There is that left by God that will be the, the, the beginning of, of something far better as he's brought down and humbled. Think of the Apostle Paul and his salvation. And there he is in all his pride and arrogance. And he's lying as, as one intervention by the Lord. He's lying blinded by the side of the road, relying on other people to lead him into Damascus. And he's absolutely humiliated. He's humbled. There's so many occasions in the Bible where God intervenes and pride is destroyed. But the story is a story not just of humiliation, and it is humiliation, it is the humbling, but it's a story of restoration. God doesn't leave them there. And discipline is that. God doesn't intervene in our lives as Christians when we manifest sins like pride to destroy us. He loves us, he cares for us. The pride's a bad thing, it's a hateful thing, it's a destructive thing, and it takes us far away from God and builds barriers between us and God. And, as I said, we end up staring down and not looking up. We end up obsessed by things that are less than God, and we, we lose sight of what's important in life and who's important in life. And God wants to readjust our focus. He wants to recalibrate our priorities and to do that sometimes is painful but the purpose of doing it is to restore and to restore to something better so we're not told how long he lasted in this condition we don't know what the seven periods actually are some speculate but nonetheless there seemed to be a cycle of seven and and when that was passed at the end of it at that God-ordained span of time, he lifts his eyes to heaven. And it's interesting, isn't it? That's the key. It's the direction of his gaze. The whole time is the key to it. You see, the tree is the sort, he's looking down to everything under his authority in that picture, in the dream. And now he's looking up. It's the essential difference. And that's the difference between 
being proud and not being proud is the direction of your gaze. If you're looking up, you find your perspective in the big picture. If you're looking down in folk, you are self-elevated to an unspiritual state. And he recognises who God is. He sees him. And he recognises who he is. Perspective has been restored. The exception to this is the Lord Jesus in the Bible. We do read about the Lord Jesus in his humiliation, being humbled, but he humbled himself because there was no sin in him. He voluntarily, intentionally humbled himself and then God highly exalted him. And that's in Philippians chapter 2. And he took on what? He took on our shame and he took on our humiliation, our sin, and bore it. That's what Calvary is. And he went down into the depth of all of that, not because of his own sin, but because of our sin. The marvellous thing is when you see at the end of this chapter where Nebuchadnezzar ends up and what he ends up doing. He ends up worshipping. That's what you have at the end of the chapter. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honour the King of Heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. One writer said this, how can we exalt ourselves when we fix our eyes upon Jesus in worship? We can't. And worship is the fruit that follows this restoration. His gaze is upon God. Again, C.S. Lewis, who I've quoted quite a bit tonight, puts it this way, that sin is essentially competitive. Essentially competitive. So is pride. When you think about that, there's a lot of truth in that statement. That competing with other people in whatever has got a lot to do with sin. In putting yourself above people in one way or another. And so we need to learn the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar learned painfully. We need to learn this, lest we learn it painfully. That we need to learn to look at our pride as God looks at it and to hate it. We can hate pride in other people. We see it and it's a, an ugly thing to see in someone else. And if it's ugly to see in someone else, it's ugly for them to see in us. Arrogance and pride. So what does that look like? How, how would that look like in my life or yours? Just think about that, pride. The whole, the whole I suppose the whole environment in which younger folk live, um, is an environment where pride can be easily manifested and displayed as you elevate yourself in an artificial way above other people. And that is something that can be problematic. I'll finish with this idea. And by the way, I should have said, uh, John Baptist, his statement really is the antidote. He must increase and I must decrease. It's the antidote to pride. But listen to this. When pride threatens you, consider the contrast between a proud person and our humble saviour. 
and sing with Isaac Watts when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. My riches gain, I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Trust that may be a bit of a challenge to us this evening. That if we are afflicted by the sin of pride that we would identify it and deal with it lest the Lord humbles us and deals with it. Let's just pray and give thanks for his work.